Hello and welcome to Genderfuge, a podcast coming to you from the course Social Theory and Issues at Mount St. Vincent University. Our course has migrated to online due to the COVID-19 pandemic, which is likely to compromise the quality of our recording somewhat. Robert Wright, a social worker and sociologist whose 29-year career has spanned the fields of education, child welfare, forensic mental health, trauma, sexual violence, and cultural competence. A clinician, academic, and administrator, he has always integrated his work delivering direct practice clinical service to clients with teaching and supervising interns and promoting lasting systemic change through social policy advocacy. He also consults, trains, speaks, and comments on a wide range of issues. His extensive pro bono work gave birth to the People's Counseling Clinic, a nonprofit mental health clinic. His pioneering work with colleagues in cultural competence and conducting cultural assessments has received national attention. For today's interview and to support the work of generating our interview guide, students in SOAN 3501 viewed documentary films about the Central Park Five and read Duru's 2004 article, The Central Park Five, The Scottsboro Boys, and the Myth of the Bestial Black Man. This myth, described by Duru as deeply embedded in the American psyche and the American criminal justice system, frames black men as animalistic, sexually unrestrained, inherently criminal, and ultimately bent on rape. Robert, would you say that you have seen evidence of this myth playing out in the lives of people you work with? Um, I'd say yes, Kellyanne. I'd say that um, uh, this myth plays out in two ways, really. One is the kind of the, the social adaptation of this myth, such that um, black men are perceived by the culture in this way that uh, Duru describes them, this animalistic kind of, of disposition, right? So, and that results in, in things like the dangerousness of black men being overestimated and, uh, and that, that, uh, that contributes to a general fear of black men that exists in the culture, that phenomenon that black men experience of just walking down the street and seeing people kind of cross the street and, and, and uh, to avoid them, or that, that experience of standing in an elevator and having people be nervous beside you, or uh, that kind of thing. So this general idea of the dangerousness of black men is, um, is something that then black people have to walk around and experience. Um, but the second way that it, it affects us is the internalized perception, self-perception, so the psychological effect of growing up in this environment where, as a black man, what is available to me, a whole range of experiences uh, as a, in terms of my gender and my race, are limited, right? Yes. So uh, can a black man cry? Can a black man uh, be gay? Can a black man be a sissy? Mm -hmm. um, so, and as a queer black man, right, yes. um, this is something that I experience. Uh, now, mind you, as a, a relatively masculine black man, uh, the joke is that 
as a as a queer black man, if, as long as you can continue to make a white man flinch in an elevator, you maintain your credibility as a black man. You mm-hmm. see, this mm-hmm. idea that it, you know that the measure of your black maleness, the ability to make white people feel threatened. Mm-hmm. So I think that there are these two effects that's happening today. I see it both, like I say, in the social context and in the clinical context. Mm-hmm. So what you're describing um, sounds like a bit of a paradox, wherein, um, on the one hand, um, these stereotypes and their internalization um, are a form of oppression, and on the other hand, they're a form of protection. Um, and so given that, what's, what's the way out? Well, that form of, of protection that you talk about is there's a name for it. We call it uh, uh, cultural intimidation. Right. So if I can use the stereotypes that the negative stereotypes of me to give me some form of power, then that's the cultural intimidation factor. Mm -hmm. What's the way out? Well, I think that uh, really we need to kind of name these things like Duro attempts in his article to kind of just kind of describe where this comes from and to kind of challenge it. And uh, we certainly have to change how it affects our black male uh, representation in the criminal justice system, for example, right? Yes. And and we'll talk about that later in terms of how this perception of the black male then results in over-policing and over-charging and over-prosecuting and then uh, over-incarcerating. And having differential experiences in incarceration. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So... I'm sorry, say that again? Unwind some of that and tackle some of that. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, So the article that the students read and some of the viewing that they did um, in preparation for speaking to you was around um, the Central Park Five case that's received um, since Trump's election some renewed coverage because, of course, Donald Trump um, sort of has dug in his heels and said that he still believes that the the Central Park Five um, should have been executed, um, as he believed at that time and expressed quite strongly. Um, But in the early 2000s, when the teenagers now known as the Central Park Five were wrongfully incarcerated uh, or interrogated before they were incarcerated, coerced into uh, confession, and then ultimately convicted uh, wrongfully of rape. You were maybe a decade into your career at that time. Is that about right? Yeah. Um, And so the students were wondering if between then and now um, experiences common to black men like the ones that you've been describing, have they changed significantly? Have things improved? So the real question is, has the practices of police and the criminal justice system changed, right? Yes. And I'd say, sadly, not so much. And um, and in response to this, um, just focusing on police practice, um, the, uh, so I, you know, watched a little bit about this, um, I touched base on some of the, the documentaries and the, the film, uh, uh, which was not probably speaking a documentary, but a dramatic dramatization of this. You see the very aggressive kind of leading and oppressive inter- interrogation style that the police were having. And I'd say that that's still very much alive. 
Mm -hmm. and very much alive, not just for people uh, of, of African descent. I think that it is a way uh, that police investigate. Right? Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd just tell a very quick story. It's not really embarrassing, but a couple of summers ago, my, uh, my sister-like person, friend, a family friend, who the white grew up in our community and is very connected to the black community, and, uh, and as a youth had some engagements with the criminal justice system, uh, but as an adult has had a career in education her entire career. Anyway, she had an experience where she um, um, was at work and uh, someone lost significant amount of money because they had carried this money to work in their purse, put their purse down, their purse went missing, the money was. So one sun, summer, Sunday afternoon, we were having a family barbecue and the, and the telephone rang. It was the police asking her if she would cooperate by coming into the office and subjecting herself to a polygraph. Right? And I wow. said, and she hung up the phone and she was really distressed. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen? I polygraph. I haven't been in trouble since I was a kid. What's going on? I said, look, you don't have to subject yourself to a polygraph. She said, well, well, they asked if I said, you don't have to subject yourself to a polygraph, right? right. Um, you're not charged with any crime. You're, you know, they are investigating and they're using this tactic to try to just shake the limbs of the tree. So call him back and tell him you're not going to come. Really? I, I, I can't do that. I said, well, call him back and I'll take the phone. So she called him back and I took the phone. I said, hey, my name's Robert. I'm sitting here with my sister. We're having a family barbecue. She's thought about it. She doesn't want to participate in the polygraph. Thanks so much. Have a good day. He said, what do you mean? Who, who are you? What are you, uh, you? And then he starts going into this. Well, you know, she has to be a citizen. If she's not a citizen. I said, well, she is a citizen but she doesn't have to subject herself to a polygraph and it's stressing her out here in the middle of the summer. Uh, and uh, she's not wanting that stress in her life. So thanks very much. Well, well who are you anyway? Are, are you a lawyer? Are you a, I said, no, I'm not a lawyer. I'm her brother. I mean, I'm just calling you to tell her, tell you that, well, well, just, just wait a minute. Just wait a minute. You know, who are you anyway? Why, why, why are you involved? I said, look, I'll tell you who I am. So I told him who I am not a lawyer, a forensic social worker. I know the law very, very well. I know that my sister is not obligated at all. She's not obliged to participate. So good luck. He says, well, let, well hold on, just, wait, just a minute. Play the devil's advocate with you. What if, what? I said, no, 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 you see, that's the point. I don't want to play the devil's advocate with you. I don't play any games with you. My sister doesn't want to play any games with you. It's her right not to be harassed by this situation. So I would suggest you go back to your police managers and find a way of investigating this crime that doesn't involve harassing my sister. Well, well I will. I will go back. I'll, I'll, and I'll, I said, well, good, good day. Have a, have a good day. Right. Right. So this kind of aggressive kind of use of police kind of of uh, intimidation tactics is alive and well as a police tactic, right? So one of the things we talked about during uh, the street checks phenomenon is this idea of illegal detention.
mm-hmm. right? And you be detained by the police long before you're in handcuffs. Right. If a police officer says, excuse me, can I ask you a few questions, right? If you don't know that you have the right to treat that police officer as if he were a panhandler, right? Not to suggest we should pass without commenting to panhandlers, but you know, you can say to the panhandler, hey man, have a good day. And you don't have to break your stride. And you can do that to the police. Right. But because the police count you not knowing that, when they stop you, even if you're looking at your wristwatch, nervous about where you're going, as they continue to stop you in your tracks and interrupt your day, they are psychologically detaining you in yes. contravention of the Charter of Freedoms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And every police officer knows this, and every police officer practices this. Mm-hmm. Is in this something that they're taught? How do they? How does it come to be that police officers are? aware of this um, dynamic and, and use it to their advantage. Of course, they're taught it, but mm-hmm. whether it's part of the formal curriculum or the informal curriculum, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But every single police officer is taught to assert themselves and to create an aura to suggest to members of the public that their authority is greater than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So we'll talk a little later about different cases, but uh, you know there was the case of the the black boy who was uh, assaulted by police in Bedford not that long ago, yes. and you see that that he is standing and has altercation with police that ex- extends some distance, maybe twenty feet. He's not illegally in a location. The police are confronting him. He says, "Well, I, I'm allowed to be here. I'm just talking out of my mouth." You keep it up, we're going to arrest you. You keep it up, we're going to arrest you. What? Arrest me for what? For talking out of my mouth? For being sassy to a police officer? Keep it up now. Keep it up now, they say. And then they turn and they just approach him. And then you see on video the takedown. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What did that boy, what law did he break? We can't think of one. In fact, the police arrested him. Detained him, put him in the back of the car, called his police, his parents who came, picked him up, and took him home without charges. Well, police knew they couldn't charge him with anything. And if they did charge him with something, it would be the trifecta that is prima facie evidence of police inappropriate behavior. You know the three things? Creating disturbance, resisting arrest, assaulting a police officer. When right. you see those three things in the absence of an originating charge, you know that the police have overstepped themselves. Because, That's interesting. Right? Because the only disturbance that was being created there was a confrontation with the police that the police initiated by their presence. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, and the situation that happened um, in January, I believe it was in the Mumford Walmart um, with the woman who was arrested, it would have been a similar circumstance. There were, was it those three charges that were laid? Those were her. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a bit about that situation? Yes. It's fairly well 
publicized that Santita Rea was in a Walmart shopping with her children, pushing a, a baby carriage so she did not have a shopping cart. And I think the story goes that she went to the electronics counter and she purchased some things there, which she put in her her uh, uh, shot her baby carriage and um, her stroller. And then she proceeded through Walmart and purchased or picked up several other things, which she then put in the the stroller as well. Mm-hmm. And before leaving the store, she was confronted by the uh, Walmart security and the police, and they violently arrested her. Yes. Um, she was not arrested for shoplifting because it is impossible to have shoplifted if you have not left the store yet with that you are having. So you can go into the grocery store and fill your pockets with things and walk around all day. You haven't shoplifted unless you've left the store with those things. Right. Okay. Right. So she hadn't even approaching an exit when she was accosted, confronted. She, there was a, a scuffle that ensued, and she was arrested with those three things, creating a mm-hmm. disturbance, resisting arrest, uh, d- assaulting a police officer. Mm-hmm. So the question, I mean, one of the questions to me is why the police would have even responded to this call that would um, have been placed, I guess, by security at the Walmart. I mean, the police should have been aware that there couldn't have been a crime of shoplifting committed at that time, and yet they arrived and, you know, aggressively apprehended this woman. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, p- police call come when you call them, right? But I think that in this day's context, um, particularly with the heightened concerns about uh, racial disparity in policing, police should exercise increased judgment yes. to responding to these things, right? Um, what were they protecting if, if the goal is to serve and protect? Were they protecting a head of lettuce at Walmart? <laughs> you know, in fact, Walmart and the police both lost so much as a result of this inter- interaction that it would have been better had the security officer or the police officer said to themselves, uh, how much are the products that are in this lady's cart worth? Right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And into their own pockets and paid it. <laughs> yes, yeah. It would, it would, is that thirty dollars worth of, to hear? Have a nice day, Mr. Walmart mm-hmm. security officer. We're going to go patrol people for real crimes. Right. My family hasn't been to Walmart since, and I can tell you, it's not easy to avoid Walmart. I mean, there are so many things that you really have to scratch your head to figure out where you're going to get that if it's not at Walmart. But we have not been back, so I'm sure we're not alone. Yeah. Another kind of um, interesting, I guess, aspect of um, Rhea's situation, as far as the content of our course goes, um, is the fact that it underlines the discrimination that um, women of color also experience when it comes to the criminal justice system. So our readings and the materials that we've looked at have been very much focused on um, the the kind of um, myths that are uh, foisted upon black men. Um, Could you talk to us a little bit about um, how women's experiences relate to these racist stereotypes? Yes. 
you, you note that uh, black men are certainly dramatically overrepresented in the criminal justice system, but among women who are incarcerated at a much lower rate than men in our society, black women certainly uh, are overrepresented, dramatically overrepresented in terms of women who are incarcerated. And again, it, it goes back to this, this perception, uh, this racialized perception of black people being, uh, I guess, less than human, really. Um, but, but I think it, it shows up a little differently for black women than it does for black men. Uh, so it talks about black, black women and the use of the black female body as kind of the, the, um, the shield that protects the black community. So black women literally standing in front of uh, black men and physically protecting them from lynch mobs, for example. Hmm. Black women, their black bodies to uh, stand between society and the black children in uh, you know, protecting them from victimization of various types. And so even though black women, you know, have this, uh, uh, very mixed presentation, right? So that there, if you think about it from uh, the time of enslavement, uh, the uh, and I think that uh, it's interesting that uh, if we think about it, uh, Nina Simone wrote the song for black women, looking at the stereotypes of four black women, right? There's the Aunt Sarah character who is a strong, um, capable individual able to work in the field alongside a man whose body is so strong that they can take whatever abuse is subjected to them, right? Mm -hmm. um, she talks about, you know, those, uh, those um, um, light-skinned, pretty black women who use their body um, to, um, to provide for their family through sex trade and, and, and the like. Uh, she talks about those uh, black women who are fierce protectors of the black community and would cut any MF that, you know, should try to disc, uh, kind of uh, threaten them, right? So, uh, so these are some of the stereotypes that black women have dealt with over the time. And, and I think it, it shows up. So whether you see a black woman as uh, an object of your oppression or black women as an object of your desire, or a black woman as something to be feared, this, these are all some of the st stereotypes that black women carry. Mm -hmm. um, and so that also plays into interactions between black women and the police. Um, sure. Police are, you know, as... Um, they hold those stereotypes and biases as much as anybody else in the society, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And so the, so the police and, and, and you can, I don't know, black people say, well, Robert, have you ever been street checked? I'm a black man. So yes, I've had encounters with the police and in my encounters with police, I can tell that there's there that you can sense yourself being assessed Right. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, here's a black man. He's in a little, you know, so it's like, 
what does the vehicle tell me about the person who's driving this vehicle? What does the what is this person wearing and what does that tell me? What is their race? So they're kind of doing the calculus to figure out what kind of citizen you are and therefore how can I treat you? Mm-hmm. Can I abuse you? Can I intimidate you? Do mm-hmm. I need to be polite to you? Do I need to be a def- deferential? Do I, you know, so, uh, and I can feel, you can feel that. Uh, but it's really about trying to slot you in the category of citizen that then respond, uh, that, that gets a particular police response. Right. So those typologies that you're describing play out in the calculus that the police are So um, you're mentioning street checks, and this is something that came up a little bit earlier um, in our conversation um, as well. Um, You've been extremely active in responding to the problem of street checks in the Halifax Regional Municipality um, and in responding to the Wortley report uh, about street checks that came out last year, I guess. It was just last year? Yes. You've actually been among the voices calling for a ban on street checks um, entirely. Um, So I was hoping that you could talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, What do we know about street checks as they articulate with racism in the HRM? Some of our listeners might not be familiar um, with uh, the problem as it manifests here or with the Wortley report either. Um, So maybe start with that and then a little bit about why you would prescribe a ban to address these problems. Okay. Well, just in terms of what is a street check, um, a street check is defined, uh, well, there are all kinds of definitions. For today, I'll say, well, it's, it's the indiscriminate stopping and questioning of a citizen for no apparent reason, right? And I think that that part of the definition is, is important, right? Because, like, if you run a red light, well, let's not talk about traffic stops because when you're driving a vehicle, police can t- pull you over for no reason at all. And that has to do with the highway acts that the police have the, have the right to check on the safety of highways. And so if police just want to pull you over to see if you have proper licenses, registration, and, uh, and insurance, they can do that. Right. But in terms of just walking down the street, the police really don't have the right to interrupt you or to detain you and to question you unless you are committing a crime or are engaged in formally uh, behavior that is formally assessed as suspicious. And there is a Supreme Court of Canada test of suspiciousness. So, for example, if it were the middle of the day and I were wearing a ski mask and I had uh, a crowbar and I was on your step, you know, <laughs> wrenching. That's suspicious. suspicious. Right? But if I'm walking down the street with a crowbar, does that pass the test of suspicious? Right? So the Supreme Court set a very, very high test for that suspicious behavior. But anything below that, considered a street check, an indiscriminate stopping and questioning or engaging with a member of the public. So let's remember that this has been a police practice since time immemorial, that the idea of police indiscriminately stopping people only became uh, an issue in 2003 with the Kirk Johnson case, 
and that was a traffic stop case, right? But uh, he was found, it was found that poli- that uh, stopping Kirk Johnson, the many times he was stopped in the short visit that he was here home, uh, was found to be racist. And as part of the solution to that, he was of course compensated. Police were required to keep race-based statistics on their traffic stops and their street checks. And they were ordered to, to have an academic review of the practice to determine uh, whether or not it is appropriate, right? So that was 2003. The police keeping their their statistics, the race-based statistics. In the intervening time, they actually hired an individual to be their their statistics and uh, crime data analyst. They hired a PhD to do that. And from 2003 to 2017, they did nothing with the data. Mm-hmm. They did not request an academic review. And as far as we know, business continued as usual. It was not until 2017 that the CBC, uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, uh, FOI popped the data and found these dramatic represent, you know, uh, um, over-representations of black folk in the data, then it became an issue. And so mm-hmm. then in 2017, we began, I was part of a DPAD coalition, and, and there were others in the black community and others still who called for the banning of street checks. And we were calling for the banning of street checks because they are illegal. Mm-hmm. Not because they were, you know, uh, racist and disproportionately applied, even though that was true, but because the actual practice was illegal, right? And yeah. anyone who attended the press conference that, that Scott Wortley released his report, I was present and was representing this this look, this uh, disposition. And every time I spoke, I said, street checks are illegal and they need to be banned. And I was involved in conversations with members of the judici- uh, of the Justice Department, police uh, commission, and the policing bodies who never clearly addressed the legality of the issue, right? They simply said, this is a useful tool and it's an important tool. Let's figure out how to better regulate it. I kept saying, right. no, we mm-hmm. do not regulate illegal behavior. Right. We ban it. We we label it for what it is and we ban it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it was 2017 that they the they commissioned the Wortley report, which was an academic study of street checks and Wortley's report, uh, you know, told us an awful lot. Uh, but uh, I, I was saying to people, let's not celebrate the Wortley report too, too much, because let's remember. It was called for in 2003, so it's really 14 years late. Yes. Right? And didn't go far enough. Scott Wortley is a socio-legal scholar. He is not a mm-hmm. lawyer. And so he was not well positioned to actually question or interrogate the legality of street checks. So at the end of the day, he said, 
street checks create this harm, mm -hmm. they could be banned or they could be regulated using the following things, considering the following things. So banning was an option that he presented. Yes. But then there was, if, if not banned, then there were a multiple, multitude of things that he suggested. And when the government then called together people to talk about street checks, they talked, they called people together to talk about which of the Wortley recommendations should we implement to regulate this practice? And we said, mm -hmm. if the ban isn't on the table, we're not interested in being at the table because we're not interested in regulating an illegal practice. Right. Yeah. So uh, the Wortley Working Group fell apart. Eventually, the Human Rights Commission, again, only because it was uh, uh, advocated for by the members of the black community, the Human Rights Commission commissioned former Chief Justice Michael McDonald to actually render a legal opinion on the legality of street checks. And yeah. that report came back and said street checks are illegal. Right. And yeah. so have they now been banned? Uh, the have said that they have banned street checks and have, have um, put in place guidelines for police to guide them in their interactions with members of the public, which includes a, a license or an allowance for police to interact with members of the public uh, based on the idea of policing suspicious activity. But in our view, the regulation is lower than the Supreme Court standard of what right. is suspicious, right? right. So if I'm street corner with my hands in my pockets talking to a, a group of two or three friends, is that suspicious behavior according to the police regulation standard? Maybe. Is it suspicious behavior according to the Supreme Court of Canada? Certainly not. I should hope not. Right? So, so what is the standard that the police have put in place? To be quite honest with you, um, it's not clear to me. Okay. It's probably not clear to them either in that case. It is lower. It is a lower standard than, in our view, is legal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the current regulations that govern police and community interactions is illegal and needs to be redrafted in a way such that the guidelines for police community interactions are actually legal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, as I know you're aware in Wortley's uh, report and in his press conference, um, he was sort of parsing out the issue in a slightly different way um, than you are. And what he was saying is that there's this um, public perception of what a street check is uh, and that that's distinct from the police perception of what a street check is. And I believe that he understood that police perception as reflecting the technical meaning of the term. And so he was saying that when it's an actual street check, part of what that uh, experience or that um, 
phenomenon is by definition is that um, it's something that's going to be documented. And so that's how we're all able to be here today. That's how we're all able to know what's going on is that this documentation has been occurring. Um, however, Wardley said, if we ban street checks entirely, um, then we will no longer be collecting that documentation, but police are likely to continue having the same kind of interactions with the public that the public perceives as street checks anyway, those undocumented interactions. Um, and so the problem is going to continue. Maybe it's going to be worse because documentation isn't going to be collected. So maybe those, those interactions will be more oppressive and we're just not going to know anything about it or be able to provide any proof. And so that was one of the reasons why he was suggesting that um, perhaps regulation would be better than a ban. What you're saying is that all of those interactions are illegal. Yes. Yes, I think that, and I, I respect Scott Wortley. I think he's uh, he's a great guy and a very able researcher. Um, but I don't think he um, he in his, in that disposition embodies the black community reality. So it's essentially saying, if we ban this illegal practice, we'll stop recording it, and then we won't be able to analyze it. So we yes. should allow it so it can be recorded, so yes. we measure its harm. That is just ridiculous to me on so many levels. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. How about this? How about strict the police from interacting with the public except when they are legally required to do so, right? How about that? Right? Mm -hmm. So that then every time I am in touch with a police officer, they would be required to tell me why legally they have the right to interact with me. Yes. And if they can't provide me with that information, I will know that this is an illegal interaction. And I don't need the police officer to record that. I can mm -hmm. simply say, hey, your name is Smith. What's your badge number, Mr. Smith? Because I think this has been an illegal interaction. And I'm going to call the EPAD coalition, who has a, 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 a legal monitoring. And I'm just going to record this interaction. Thanks. Have a good day. Mm -hmm. right. So I think that uh, we don't need the police to regulate their illegal behavior. Right. Yeah. We mm -hmm. need to cease their illegal behavior. It was a, such a ridiculous thing. When the Minister of Justice originally put a temporary moratorium on street checks, uh, just as, uh, as this stuff was ramping up, in his directive, placing a moratorium on street checks, he recommended that every peace officer review the Charter of Rights and Freedoms before they begin their day shift. Okay. You would think police might already be familiar with that document. I would say that if police need to be reminded to review the Charter of Rights and Freedoms before they begin their shift, then we should put a moratorium on all police activity until such time that we can be certain that they are all intimately familiar with the document. Absolutely, yeah. Right. 
So the police issued um, an apology for street checks uh, in November of last year. Um, and since that apology, there have, of course, been, you know, at the very least, these two um, publicized interactions that were captured on video that we've already talked about today. Um, those weren't um, those weren't street checks per se, but they certainly, you know, show something about the attitude of police towards citizens in general and the black community in particular. Um, what's your take on the apology that was offered? Do you feel, does it make you feel any better? I would say the apology event was probably one of the best apology events I have ever encountered. Uh, there was, there were children singing, there were children drumming, there was a, you know, Mayanne Francis, who our former Lieutenant Governor, and a fellow at uh, I think Dalhousie's School of Management, uh, Dalhousie's, yeah, I think so, Dalhousie or St. Mary, I'm not sure. Anyway, she she laid out the case for um, the history of negative police and black community interaction in the most eloquent and sophisticated way that I have seen throughout this whole dilemma. And then the police chief made a an an apology that was top notch hmm. and then we increase of very very uh, unfortunate and tragic and in my belief uh illegal interactions between police and members of the black community there was the the man who was uh um, who was subdued with a stun gun on quintal road the santina rayo case in walmart and the case of the young black man who was a uh, young black boy who was uh, detained and uh, brutally detained by police in Bedford. Uh, and those are just the ones that we have video recordings of. Exactly. That uh, hit the news, right? So I would say that um, those incidents and incidents like those demonstrate to me that the entire policing uh, machinery is still incompetent in its ability to rein itself in to uh, conduct its business in a way that does not violate the civil and human rights of citizens, and in particular, the civil and human rights of black people. Yes. So an apology without the capacity to moderate and rectify your behavior is an apology that must be suspect. Mm -hmm. Now, if he said in his apology, I apologize for what happened and I'm going to try to do better, but I got to warn you, I don't have the ability to keep my officers from violating your civil and human rights. Mm -hmm. Put us on a path towards that. But your civil and human rights are going to continue to be violated until we can truly reform the nature of policing. I think that would have been a more realistic apology. Mm -hmm. But I think that this is the thing, and this is the thing that I've been saying a lot. I haven't written about it, but there is a truth that every police officer knows and that every soldier knows that none will cop to. That's the pun, pun is intended there. <laughs> <laughs> that it is impossible to police and it is impossible to soldier 
without violating the civil and human rights of the people you're sworn to protect. Hmm. In our current way of imagining these roles, it is impossible to fulfill the mandate without violating the civil and the human rights of the people mm -hmm. you're sworn to protect. Mm -hmm. um, so it sounds as if you didn't necessarily read the apology of the police chief as being cynical. He could have meant what he was saying. It was just that um, whether he did or he didn't, he didn't have the power given the sort of um, structural and institutional nature of policing um, to follow through on on that apology. Um, are there ways? I don't know what's worse. The idea that, you know, maybe it would be better if I were cynical and they say, you know, he told us this thing, but he knows differently. Mm -hmm. So uh, that would be, maybe that's better than to suggest that uh, he's ignorant of the challenge that's uh, in, ahead of him, that mm -hmm. he's actually coping with now. Right? Mm -hmm. Are there um, changes that you can imagine to the nature of policing that would make it more possible to follow through on that kind of apology? It would have to be very radical policing, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Right. So if you think about it, uh, ambulance attendants do not cruise the streets looking for people to administer medical aid to, mm -hmm. right? They stay in their uh, they, you know, respond when someone is responded and a, and a vehicle has left a certain area to take a call, then vehicles mobilize to cover gaps that exist in our in our provincial system and so they're they're mobile right but they're not seeking out <laughs> so i say what if we said well police have a very critical role in our society investigating crimes then clearly we need a lot of resources in the criminal investigation division mm -hmm. police have a critical role keeping our highways safe so police, we would need to have police patrolling our streets and highways, right? But do we need police just roaming the streets, policing the daily interactions of citizens? If they are unable to do that in a way that, that, that respects the civil and human rights of, of the people that they're supposed to be protecting, Maybe they need to be off the streets entirely. Hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. and if we do people in the street doing that work, the question I'd ask is, do they need to have guns and uh, protective gear? Right. And should they look more like agents of care than police officers, right? Yes. Um, so I think that we'd have to radically reconstruct what we want from police in order to imagine uh, a better way forward. Mm -hmm. And and I say a better way forward because again, I'm skeptical whether or not the current model of deployment under the current mindset and 
and tooling will ever enable us to have absolute confidence that police will not violate the civil and human rights of people on a daily basis with their daily actions. Mm -hmm. It also strikes me that um, that sort of model of policing um, in a general sense might attract different kinds of candidates, um, different kinds of police officers, um, which might also have an impact on the interactions that police have with the public. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things some students picked up on in the materials that they watched uh, about the Central Park Five um, was this issue of the quote unquote talk that um, black families um, often have to have with uh, the young people in their lives um, about how to handle themselves, how to manage the situation if they are um, apprehended by the police. Um, and so uh, students were wondering if you could shed a little bit of light on that um, conversation, um, maybe drawing on your personal experience, um, advising the youth who are in your own life or, you know, however you want to go with that question. Yes. Well, the talk is something that is a part of a black experience. Like there's, I don't think in, there's ever any black Canadian family that doesn't have as part of their kind of cautioning of their children this idea of what to do if you've been if you're if you encounter the police it's sad but it's it's a regular part of our 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 experience it's really funny because when I came out to my family my mother was concerned about me and said you know Robert I'm just I'm really afraid for you being gay. I said, why would you be afraid for me being gay? And she, of course, locked in a different generation. Well, she says, I'm just worried that someone would, you know, like beat you up or something because you're gay. And I laughed. I said, um, gay bashing for a black gay man of a certain size is not something you need to worry about. Mm -hmm. You know, if I were a petite, effeminate gay man, maybe still gay bashing is a thing. But I'm a black man of a certain size. The concern you should still be having for me is what will happen to me if I encounter the police. <laughs> Which I'm sure did a lot better. That wasn't very reassuring for your mother. Right? Uh, <laughs> well, it, it probably wasn't, but I said, yeah, gay bashing, <laughs> black man of a certain size, still with by the police with violence, still a thing. And so this talk is a thing you have to say to your kids, look, if you're going out, be careful if you're hanging with your friends, particularly if you're hanging with your white friends, remember you're not white. And what we're saying to them is, if you're in a crowd and something's going down, right? The police are not going to treat you the way they're treating your white friends. So be careful. Now there are positions that come out of the talk mm -hmm. right? there is the black activist kind of you know know your rights assert your rights disposition right which is i know my rights you can't talk to me like that get away from me i don't need to listen to you i can ignore you if i want to right and there's the what i call the baba black sheep approach to police interaction. And that's where you fold your hands in front of you 
And the only thing you ever say is, yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. Yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir, right? Mm -hmm. Both of these dispositions occur in the talk. Some families take this very aggressive, no, you're right, you, they can't talk to you, you know, and some take this other disposition. Uh, uh, and I think, again, it's, it's reflective a little bit in terms of what the family culture is around, uh, you know, kind of uh, their level of fear of violence and the, the desire to protect their children from violence. Their, their kind of connection to this idea of assertion of civil and human rights and, and their uh, desire to do that in all circumstances, regardless of the physical threat to oneself. But uh, so I say there are these two versions of the talk, uh, and they're equally valid. And I don't know in terms of disposition what percentage of people get which talk and which percentage get the other. I think mm -hmm. that I was raised in a family where it was like the Baba Black Sheep approach, right? Like, just, just keep your head down. Yes. No, sir, three bags full, sir, uh, and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, again, the other piece, of course, is you should not, under any circumstances, run from the police. Right? right. So avoiding them is one thing, running is another. Okay. And, and why is that? Well, because that's a way to get yourself killed. Right? Right. Um, it's interesting, and I didn't look it up, but there there have been some ju judicial decisions out of the United States where uh, where people, you know, just people walking down the street, police, they see police and they just start to run. And so the police chase them and uh, tackle them, frisk them and find drugs on them or weapons on them and so forth. And of course, the matter goes to court. The question is, well, well, why did you chase these folk? And, and the police say, well, because they were being suspicious. What was their suspicious behavior? They were running away from us. And, and the courts in the United States have said that it is no longer acceptable for the police to believe that a black person running from you is a suspicious behavior. Hmm. Simply because it may be just a black man trying to avoid the daily indignities inherent in, ex in ex experiencing interaction. Right? Mm -hmm. so, so there is this recognition that uh, all is not well with police black community interaction in North America and yeah. that police really are the, are the people uh, and the agents responsible for correcting that, right? So although we have the talk, um, maybe it's a talk that every uh, staff sergeant or, or shift sergeant should have with their uh, patrol cohort before they begin their their uh, their patrols, because clearly the police officers who were involved in the three incidents I mentioned weren't cautioned before they left for their patrol that day. Yes. Let's be careful out there. Let's remember the Charter of Rights. <laughs> These are citizens that we police. They are not all, uh, uh, you know, dispossessed criminals who are not citizens. And in particular, let us be hyper-conscious of how we interact with people of color, Indigenous people, 
black, young, and older men. Now, that's the talk. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great place to leave off our conversation for today and leave a little bit of uh, time for the students to interact with you and ask whatever questions might be remaining um, for them. Um, so this has been very interesting. Um, I know that I've learned a lot and um, I thank you for sharing your time with us today and talking over these issues. You're very welcome. Shop, should I take a shot? Sight, set up.